Before we begin, the bench would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded, the Yagara and Turrbal people. We want to pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. With that, welcome to the bench. We're your hosts, Eddie and Henry. Essentially, this podcast and this series more generally sets out to present high-profile cases that are winding their way through the Australian judiciary in an interesting and engaging way. We want to present this information in a way that anyone can understand. And we understand that it's a lot easier these days to turn to the media as your main source of information for the high-profile cases that wind their way through our judiciary. But we have to acknowledge that the media, there's a bit of spin. And the way to get the real and essential facts is to read the cases. But we also acknowledge that reading cases is boring, difficult, tedious. And nobody does it. (laughs) Absolutely nobody does it. Yep. So we thought that we'd bypass that, gather the information to the best of our knowledge and present them in the way we know how. Mm -hmm. On today's episode, we're talking about the prominent High Court trial of Cardinal George Pell in 2020. We'll give you a brief overview of the case. Following a trial before the County Court of Victoria, Pell was convicted of one charge of sexual penetration of a child under 16 years and four charges of committing an act of indecency with a child under the age of 16. The sexual penetration charges were alleged to have been committed in late 1996. The act of indecency charge was purportedly committed between mid-1996 and early 1997. All charges allegedly took place in St. Patrick's Cathedral in East Melbourne after Sunday Solemn Mass and within months of Pell's installation as the Archbishop of Melbourne. The alleged victims were two cathedral choir boys. Now, before we explain why Pell's conviction was quashed, we will discuss the history of the allegations and the passage of this case through the judiciary. And it's worth stating off the bat that we do not have access to all of the evidence in this case. Matters involving child sexual abuse are obviously quite sensitive, and out of respect for the alleged victim, for example, the audiovisual evidence he provided in this case has not been made publicly available. The deliberations of the jurors as well is also private, and we don't have access to that. Same deal with the identity of the jurors even. A lot of unknowns. But that said, there are a great deal of court documents and transcripts, believe us, we've read them, in the public domain. So we have looked to these in order to inform our research. So we'll start by saying who exactly is George Pell? Raised in Ballarat, Victoria, Pell was born in 1941 to an Anglican father and a devoutly Catholic mother. Interestingly, after high school, Pell signed with the Richmond Football Club and kicked off a minor AFL career. (laughs) Pardon the pun there. Um, Pell, when asked about his decision to turn to priesthood, is quoted to have said, I feared and suspected and eventually became convinced that God wanted me to do his work. And I was never able to successfully escape that conviction. I'm not sure the irony of that statement would truly dawned on him at the time. I I just don't think it was known to him at the time. No. Didn't know what was to come. But Pell was eventually called to the cloth in 1966. There are originally two trials, the swimmer's trial and the cathedral trial. The swimmer's trial was withdrawn as the evidence was insufficient. For that reason, we'll focus on the cathedral trial. We've attached excerpts of the victim's testimony from both to the show notes. To be honest, they're a bit of a harrowing read, but we'd recommend checking them out if you're interested. In 2002, some of the first allegations against Pell came to light. A Melbourne man accused Pell of sexually abusing him at a Catholic youth camp in 1961. The accuser was just 12 years old. Pell denied these allegations. 
In March 2013, the Victorian police launched Operation Tethering into unreported crimes committed by Pell. These involved five to ten boys between 78 and 2001. Pell denied these allegations too. In June 2017, Victoria Police announced they were charging Pell with a series of sexual assaults against several victims. Pell, who was in Rome at the time, returned to Australia to face trial. He continues to deny these allegations. Now, the passage of this case through the judiciary is incredibly complex and fascinating, leaving us with a lot to unpack. Pell's first trial for the allegations of misconduct in the St. Patrick's Cathedral commenced in the Victorian County Court in August of 2018, overseen by Chief Justice Kidd. Pell was represented by Robert Richter QC, a lawyer famed for representing defendants who are unpopular in public opinion. The cathedral trial involved allegations of five counts of sexual abuse of two choir boys, who were referred to as complainants A and B. Tragically, complainant B died in an accident in mid-2015, leaving complainant A to testify against Pell in the 2018 trial. Now, complainant A doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, so for ease of understanding, I will refer to him as the alleged victim. At the end of the first trial, the jury was unable to reach a unanimous verdict. A retrial was ordered, overseen again by Chief Justice Kidd, with a fresh jury. On the 11th of December 2018, Pell was convicted of all five counts of sexual abuse. At the time of conviction, the second trial termed the swimmer's trial was pending, but as Henry mentioned before, it was withdrawn due to insufficiency of evidence. Pell's appeal against the conviction was dismissed by the Victorian Supreme Court. However, upon appeal to the High Court of Australia, Pell's convictions were quashed and he was acquitted of all charges. And that's where the complications actually begin. There were a number of grounds of appeal raised by Pell's counsel, but the one that stuck was procedural unfairness. The High Court found that the way evidence was presented made the jury presume Pell was guilty rather than innocent. And a pillar of our criminal justice system is that the accused is always presumed innocent until proven guilty. There were two lots of evidence, testimony from the alleged victim and opportunity witness testimony. The opportunity witnesses routinely observed Sunday solemn mass where the alleged crimes were committed. Their evidence addressed the layout of the cathedral and the timing of the offences. They suggested that Pell didn't have an opportunity to sexually assault the victim for two reasons. First, given the floor plan, there was a high risk of detection. Second, Pell's routine activities after mass required him to be accompanied at all times. Some of this evidence went unchallenged by the prosecution. The High Court continually referred to the compounding improbabilities that arose from the witness testimony. It was asked whether the evidence, considered as a whole, demanded a result other than conviction. According to the court, the jury, acting rationally when considering the charges and the evidence, should have entertained a reasonable doubt as to Pell's guilt. In short, they believed there was a significant possibility that an innocent person had been convicted. Thus, Pell was acquitted. This verdict is fairly problematic for a couple of reasons. Essentially, judges should not substitute their opinion for the juries. And how could they? Jury deliberations are carried out behind closed doors. Appeal courts, like the Victorian Court of Appeal, should not technically have access to the evidence presented in the lower courts. But the Court of Appeal examined all the evidence originally presented, including the alleged victim's testimony. Juries are fact-finders. They decide whether someone committed the crime or not. Their verdicts are viewed as legitimate and final. We don't know who was in the jury room that day, but we do know who sat on the High Court. Seven justices, four male, three female. One was educated at Harvard University, one at Oxford. They all studied law. 
I don't know about you, Eddie, but that doesn't sound like a representative selection of the wider Australian public to me. Look, I dare say you have a point there, Henry. And I guess that is the point. Juries are supposed to reflect society. In this case, the judges applied their independent assessment of the evidence and decided whether they doubted Pell's guilt. So that begs the question, what was the point of the jury in the first place? In New Zealand, the Law Commission conducted a study in the 1990s that found that appellate judges upheld jury verdicts 50% of the time. Not great odds. No, it's not. But this percentage shot up to 73% of the time, where the judge was deemed open-minded enough and thought that juries could reach different conclusions from their own. Now, don't get me wrong. Juries aren't perfect. There are well-documented cases of bias towards certain demographics. If you haven't watched 12 Angry Men, I'd highly recommend it. I'm a bit of a fan, are we? Massive one. But yeah, unfortunately, juries are the best we've got. And personally, I'm uncomfortable with the idea that whether someone is convicted depends on how open-minded the judge is. That's the first reason why this verdict was problematic. The second is down to the way the human brain works. If you take a room full of people and present them with the same evidence, they will come to different conclusions. The stimulus is the same, but individual experiences, values, beliefs and opinions directly influence one's perception of that stimulus. And it's been widely discussed in academia that getting evidence for sexual assault cases is extremely difficult, as I'm sure you can probably imagine. Like this case, there are often extreme delays in reporting sexual assault, and this is particularly prevalent among boys. There are also misconceptions about how real victims behave. Oftentimes victims don't want to testify because they don't want to relive past trauma. If a person has been sexually assaulted, they often don't remember all the details such as dates, places and other specifics. Inconsistency in testimony doesn't mean someone is lying. So reading this case, I asked myself why the High Court thought that any inconsistencies of the alleged victim's testimony should indicate Pell's innocence. The sexual assault was said to have occurred in the 1990s. The case went to trial in 2017. I struggle to remember what I did over the weekend, let alone the chronological order of highly traumatic events 25 odd years ago. The High Court doesn't hold the same view. It stated that the inconsistency should have caused the jury doubt, and this doubt was the basis for quashing Pell's conviction. Interestingly here, Pell argued that he wouldn't have sexually assaulted the alleged victims because the risk of detection was far too high. However, the final report of the Royal Commission into Child Sexual Abuse presented completely different findings. Over a five-year period, the Royal Commission handled over 42,000 calls, almost 26,000 letters and emails, and held over 8,000 private sessions where people shared their stories with a commissioner of the Royal Commission. The final report ultimately found that the level of risk does not necessarily deter crimes from being committed, and this somewhat undermines and debunks Powell's rationale here. Turning to another weak point in the defence's argument, the witnesses in this case cited Pell's habits and practices as reasons why it was improbable that he committed sexual abuse. Using scientific memory research, or SMR for short, witnesses often recall the general gist of routine events and fill the gaps in their memory with expectations. Expectations? Yes, expectations, not facts. The High Court found that Pell's habits and practices, as recounted by these witnesses, were valuable to establishing what had actually happened. However, science tells us that they aren't. Applying SMR to these witness statements, it wouldn't be unreasonable to decide, as the jury did, that Pell did have the opportunity to sexually assault the alleged victim. So to conclude, I hope we've explained this case in a way that's easy to understand. In summary, we've covered two main issues. 
Firstly, the High Court's independent assessment of the victim and witness evidence that replaced the jury's verdict with their own. Secondly, that despite the high risk of detection, despite the compounding improbabilities, there was an opportunity for Pell to have sexually assaulted the victims. The jury should and did decide whether the evidence compelled a conviction. The High Court thought otherwise. As a result, Pell walks free. And that's pretty interesting if you think about it, because I guess in compiling all of our information for this particular episode, I asked a few of my friends and family members who were all from a non-legal background what they believe to be the reason why Pell walks free today. And the responses, while they were mixed, there was a common thread. And that was just, I have no idea. And that's true, right? If you read the media or any of the news articles about Pell's case, I had no idea what was going on. And you could honestly be forgiven for assuming that acquittal means innocence. Which it doesn't. So the High Court made very clear that it didn't state he was innocent, just that there was a possibility that an innocent man had been convicted. And that's an important distinction. It's a very important distinction. And it's one that I guess is widely misunderstood. And again, difficult to read through all the cases to ascertain that fact. And the media using buzzwords just to pull in a reader, you know, they really oversimplified this case, in my view. Hopefully we haven't. (laughs) I sincerely hope not. (laughs) So just before we finish up, I think, um, Eddie, would you like to discuss more about the counsel that represented Cardinal Pell? I sure would. So Pell was represented at the first instance by Robert Richter QC. Do you want to explain to our listeners what first instance actually means? So first instance just refers to the initial trial that took place. So that was the one before the Victorian County Court in August 2018. And second question Do you want to explain what a QC is and how that's different from an SC? Okay, so a QC, it refers to somebody who is typically a senior trial lawyer. So it's usually someone who has practiced as a barrister for some period of time. And the title of QC recognises their talents and it's a bit of a mark of distinction between your average barrister and someone who's had years of trial experience and is very good in the skill of advocacy, I suppose. And they charge an absolute arm and a leg. Oh, they absolutely do. Rumours suggest that uh, an average QC can charge up to about 30 grand a day. And who was charging 25 grand in this case? Uh, That was Robert Richter. Wow. Well, not necessarily in this case, but it's been said that that's roughly the sort of bill you should expect for his services. A day. 25 grand a day, just to clarify for everybody. Exactly. And Robert Richter himself, he's a pretty interesting character. Uh, He was actually born in the Kyrgyz Republic, which was at the time a part of the Soviet Union. And uh, his family, well, his parents had met there because they were both displaced in World War II because his father was a Polish Jew and his mother was Ukrainian. And Richter and his family moved to Australia from Israel when he was 13 And they had little to no English skills, which should come as a surprise to no one. And it's actually been widely reported that Richter taught himself how to speak English from watching television programs and reading dictionaries. That's so so impressive. Quite an impressive feat. But over his career, he has defended many, many high profile and controversial figures. Clients have ranged from mass murderers, corporate criminals, underworld crime figures, conspirators in terrorist attacks, politicians accused of rape. The list goes on, and frankly, we don't have all day. Um, And not only are his clients controversial, but Richter himself has found himself in a bit of hot water for some controversial comments that have been made over the course of his career. Hit me. All right. So, for example, in 2009, Richter defended a high school teacher who had pled guilty to committing sexual acts against a teenage 
girl. During sentencing appeal, Richter argued that the victim was, quote, a drama queen. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, very palatable. Um, but believe it or not, the appeal was ultimately successful and his client was freed. And that seems to be a common theme where Richter's involved. It does seem so. 25 grand well spent. Even in the present case, at Pell's sentencing hearing, Richter received a lot of backlash for saying that the case was, and I quote, no more than a plain vanilla sexual penetration case where the child is not actively participating. That's even less palatable. Even less. You wouldn't believe it, but it got worse. And uh, Richter obviously later issued a written apology for making that statement. Sure. Yeah. And ultimately, Richter elected not to represent Pell in court for the appeal process because Richter said that he was too angry and upset at the outcome to bring the objectivity that an appeal requires. Mm -hmm. That was the official line anyway. But Richter said that it was not unusual for him to step away from the appeals of decisions where he has done the trials or the pleas because he does recognise that they usually require a clearer and more independent head to evaluate. And so that brings me to Brett Walker SC, and he was the one who successfully led Pell's appeal in the High Court of Australia. Now, Brett Walker SC has been termed the nation's leading advocate, and he can also charge up to $25,000 a day. Sensing a bit of a theme? Re-evaluating maybe my career goals. <laughs> but in 2021, Walker himself was declared the busiest advocate in the High Court of Australia, and he appeared a whopping 35 times, which was twice the number of hearings as the next busiest. And so to clarify, that's 35 times in 2021 alone. That's exactly right. I mean, I'd be pretty chuffed at the end of my career if I could say I appeared in total 35 times before the High Court, but that's just an average year for... Brett Walker. That's incredibly impressive. Absolutely. And much like Richter, Walker has defended a multitude of high-profile clients, and he's been termed one of the few remaining generalists, which means he's equally adept in the criminal jurisdiction as he is in the civil jurisdiction. And he's been known to trial matters that involve complex corporate situations, criminal law, um, constitutional matters even. Mm -hmm. The man knows no bounds, a true jack-of-all-trades. Civil and criminal, the two main distinctions you get in the legal world. Criminal is exactly what you expect, and then civil is just everything else. Yep, absolutely. And uh, he's been recently keeping himself busy defending the former Attorney General Christian Porter in his defamation battle with the ABC in the federal court. Quite a messy one, that one is. And um, he's also been engaged by West Australian Premier Mark McGowan for his looming defamation case with billionaire mining magnate Clive Palmer. And politician. And politician. Politician. Very interesting views, but that's a story for another day. So a point that I wanted to bring up when I was reading this case was Judge Kidd's judgment at first in instance. Pell was sentenced to six years imprisonment, and in the end, he spent about 404 days in close to solitary confinement. The reasons which are the interesting point on this is that Judge Kidd truncated that sentence due to otherwise good character and a blameless life, and that's at paragraph 133. He said, I, being the judge, am satisfied that you, Pell, effectively do not present as a risk of reoffending for a number of reasons, and he listed them. Your advanced years... The fact that you would be older still once released from prison, I'm not sure on that point how effective that is as a deterrent from reoffending. Ages. Ages, but a number. Yes, ages, but a number. He continued to state that Pell had otherwise good character 
and that he hadn't offended in the 22 or so intervening years between these allegations and now, or at the time that the case was heard. That's pretty interesting to say that outright in open court. That's not necessarily a given. He could have. He could have formed a pattern of behaviour. The allegations that were the subject of the cathedral trial may only be the tip of the iceberg here, and there's no way to know for sure the extent of the offending and whether it was limited to this particular incident. Absolutely, especially considering how reluctant victims are to bring uh, allegations against individuals. Uh, And just to finish off this point, he listed other factors such as the notoriety of the sexual offenders registry. Mm. Yeah. And I, I think we are, we both agree that that's not necessarily a deterrent because if sexual offender wants to reoffend, he will, regardless of whether he or she is on the sexual offenders registry. Yeah, I don't think their presence on a list will materially alter much in terms of their mindset and their patterns of behaviour. No. And as we said before, all of the information that we've cited in this podcast will be available on our show notes. So if you'd like to and have the time, please go and check that out. Um, Our podcast will be available wherever you get your podcasts. And we look forward to uh, welcoming you back for our next episode. Eddie, would you like to read us out? Well, thank you for listening. We have been your hosts, Eddie and Henry, on the bench. We hope that you found our discussion of this case to be interesting and informative. Our next episode will be uploaded in a fortnight. But until then, the bench is no longer in session.